0: The sermon I will be reading this afternoon is from written by Reverend R. Aisman, Minister Emeritus of the Providence Canadian Reformed Church here in Edmonton. And as text, he has chosen from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34. So let us read that together, please. Lord's Day 34, starting a question and answer 92. What is the law of the Lord? And there follows the 10 commandments which we read together this morning. Question and answer 93. How are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what are duties, what duties we owe our neighbor? What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of, or in addition to, the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the Heidelberg Catechism, it is made clear to us that the law of God has a dual purpose. First, it reveals to us our sins and thus drives us to Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law in our place and paid for all our sins against the law. Secondly, as we see in our Lord's Day this afternoon, the law teaches us God's will for holy living. But there is another use to the law. In the time of the Reformation, men like Luther and Calvin taught that the, Bible, that the law in the Bible is also intended to create civil peace in society. I certainly saw this as a kid. At the time, it was against the law to use God's name in vain. Sunday was an absolute day of rest. No store was open. There was not a truck on the road. Parents and others in authority had to be respected. Abortion was illegal. Adultery was forbidden and so on. The 10 Commandments functioned in society as a whole and that was a blessing. It created a well-ordered, peaceable society. Things have changed a lot over the past half century. Some parts of God's law still function, but there is a lot of hit and miss. The commands do not use God's name in vain, and keeping the New Testament Sabbath have utterly flown out the window. The sixth commandment, not to murder, is somewhat maintained, except it is perfectly acceptable to murder an unborn baby. The seventh commandment, which deals with human sexuality, well, don't, let's not get started about that right now. However, there is more to this than society is ignoring or rejecting the law of God. Society is shaped by a postmodernistic philosophy. Postmodernism basically challenges and criticizes traditional morality, truth, reason, and social progress. Since Christians believe in truth and morality that dates back to the beginning of time and has been written down in the Bible, they are a sure target for postmodernism. Especially when it comes to morality, for instance, the Ten Commandments, Christians are seen as being narrow-minded and bigoted. This is what postmodernism says about us. All claims to speak the truth are really claims to power. They are forms of manipulation. Instead of fostering freedom, they merely engender constraint and coercion. In other words, when Christians say that the law of God tells them to do this or that, we are accused of trying to have the power, power to take away other people's freedoms and force them to think just like us. These are serious charges, and we should be very aware of it. If we say based on the law of God that sex is only within a marriage context and Sunday should be a day of rest for all, we are going to experience a lot of resistance and even attack. And here in this province, you are all aware about the previous provincial government threatening to take away the funding and accreditation of our Christian schools if we did not adopt the LGBTQ curriculum. We need to be aware of this brothers and sisters because the culture around us typically makes inroads into the church and into our whole way of thinking. Today, there are Christian churches that accept abortion. They allow the practicing of homosexuality. Without even realizing it, we start thinking as the world does and challenge traditional understanding of God's word. And when we we do that, we move away from the true love of God and our neighbor. That's the exact opposite of what God wants to see of his children. God's law is his gift to us. When we recognize that law, keep it and value it. It will create a good relationship with God as well as a good relationship with our neighbor. And we will keep this in mind as we make our way through the 10 Commandments. So the theme chosen this afternoon is the blessing of the law in the life of a Christian. First, we will see how that law works, and in the second place, why God is number one. So let's do a little quiz here. Just say with me in your minds, how does the Ten Commandments start? And do you have an answer? So without raising your hands, how many answered the question by saying, you shall have no other gods before me? That is the first commandment, but it is, also, it is not how the Ten Commandments start. It starts with, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's not a commandment at all. It is a declaration of God's love and grace, who has delivered his people from slavery. Notice it starts with the words, I am the Lord your God. That takes us right back to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 where God said to Moses, I am who I am. But referring to himself in this way, God not only points to his existence, which is before and independent of this world, he is eternal and infinite, but also that the great I am is there and will always be there for his people. In other words, the great, eternal, infinite God has become Israel's God and they his people, because in the very first place he has given himself to them. This boggles the mind. In this world, there is no king, no queen, president, or prime minister, or anyone of importance who would ever take notice of us or or even spend five seconds with us. But the one eternal, true almighty God comes to us, each one of us, and says, I am there for you. Let us spend time together. Let us spend eternity together. Let's talk. Let's walk together. I am your father. I am your friend. Who would even dream this is possible? But that's how God starts the Ten Commandments I am the Lord, your God. This is not an empty statement, brothers and sisters. Politicians can make empty statements, they don't necessarily make time for you to visit them and they make promises they don't keep. The Lord immediately adds, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These words meant a lot to the Israelites because the deliverance from Egypt was a starting point of their becoming a nation and God's nation. God delivered them from the hellhole of Egypt and brought them to the promised land where the temple was built and the people could worship their God. For that reason, hearing the words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, would not only cause them to look back to the literal, literal deliverance from Egypt, but forward to the great delivery from slavery, the slavery of Satan, sin, death, that would be accomplished in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ certainly tried to make clear that connection when he referred to himself on numerous occasions that he is the I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the truth, the way, and the life. I am the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the great I am. He originates in eternity, but he has drawn so near to us by becoming our brother, taking our sins, dying on the cross to deliver us from the claws of Satan, bringing us from the land of darkness and slavery slavery, and restoring us as children of God. Think of this Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, when you hear, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You are hearing the gospel of God's grace. He loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to deliver you from slavery and become his sons and daughters. Now, what's your reaction to this? We have this amazing God, and if we definitely feel that, we are going to say to ourselves, I want a relationship with him. I love and adore him, but how am I going to show that? Now, God could say, you, you go figure it out. If you love me that much, you should be able to figure it out all by yourself on how to show that love. If that's the way it is, it would be utterly terrifying. We are sinners after all. Even though we are saved in Jesus Christ, we still struggle with our sinful nature. We could come up with all crazy kinds of ideas. I could say, I am going to marry as many women as as I can, a hundred of them if I can, have a half dozen children with each of them, and these could in turn worship God. That's a good idea, right? Not even close, that's a terrible idea. It would be a mess and an utter utter disaster. Thankfully, we don't have to figure out ourselves how to live in a right relationship with God. You see, brothers and sisters, after God declares to us that he loves us and saves us, our response is, how can I show that I love God and thank him for everything? God graciously takes care of that. He declares his love and what he does for us, and then he adds, I will show you exactly how you can live in relationship with me. And there follows the 10 commandments. It is an answered prayer. It is a gift from God to us who craves guidance. It shows us how to live or how to love God and our neighbor. No wonder we sang in Psalm 19 about God's law. They far exceed in worth the finest gold on earth, his precious testimony. They even sweeter are than all that that sweet and pure in combs that drip with honey. What beautiful, clear insights we receive in the Ten Commandments. Do not use an idol to worship God by it. Brilliant, right? Don't kill your neighbor. Of course, why didn't I think of that? Don't commit adultery, phew, I don't have to marry a hundred wives, but love the one I am with. Don't gossip, such a harmless sounding activity and fun too, but God's right. It will make all the difference in the building up of relationships with our neighbor. You see how the Ten Commandments work, brothers and sisters? The God who comes to us shows us how to live in a beautiful covenant relationship with him. Of course, these commandments, beautiful in themselves, need to be unpacked and compared with the rest of Scripture for deeper insight. Think of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount, for example You shall not commit adultery. You look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. Wow, that hits hard and is very insightful. Or what Paul writes about the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 Love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, beautiful insights how to live with God and our neighbor. It unpacks the Ten Commandments in living color and shows in exquisite detail what the life of God's children should and can look like. There is one observation that we should take note of in order to help us understand what we are dealing with in the 10 Commandments. It is their their brevity. Consider the 10 Commandments are directing us how to live with the amazing God and Savior. It's a pretty short list of commands. You know what, we can make it even shorter and Jesus did that in Matthew 22 when he summarized not just the 10 Commandments but the whole Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our Lord's Day picks up on this very well in question and answer 93. This is the law. Love God and love your neighbor. Period but we can shorten it even further as Paul does when talking about the commandments in Romans 13. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You can take the whole Bible, you can take the 10 commandments, you can take anything you read in the Bible and it will still summarize the entire law with just one word and that word is love. That doesn't make anything easier but it makes it a whole lot clearer. This is how it works. We need to look at a commandment, compare it to the rest of Scripture, reflect on it, pray about it, and own it. How does it show in a real way to love God and our neighbor? Our Heidelberg Catechism is pretty good in doing that. Take the sixth, command, uh, the sixth commandment that forbids murder. I can assure you here that I have never murdered anyone, not even close. But yet, every day, I break this commandment. Our catechism says in Lord's Day 40, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. The Lord Jesus makes that clear in his Sermon on the Mount. Call your brother an idiot, you are a murderer. Also, in 1 John 3:15, we read, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's the beauty of the Ten Commandments. Short, sweet, and when you work with it in a deeply spiritual fashion, you will see with your entire person, you are to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. For instance, when you are interacting with a person, ask yourself this question, is my attitude, my thoughts, my body language, my words, and my actions all focused on loving this person and allowing him or her to grow with me? You get that, right? Imagine what happens between a husband and a wife when they regularly examine themselves and ask, am I genuinely loving my spouse with my attitude, my words, and actions? That's going to make for an amazing marriage where two people can hardly believe how good they have it. Imagine what happens in a congregation when members regularly examine themselves and ask, am I aware of my fellow members? Do I love them and want the best for them? Am I I willing to drop my resentments and grudges because we have had our disagreements? If we don't do that, then don't be surprised that the communion of saints is as flat as a board. But if we do show that kind of love, a love that is patient, gentle forgiving and self-controlled it is going to be a kind of congregation where members thank God for the peace and joy in Jerusalem who would want to be separate from that in this way we see brothers and sisters the same amazing God who gave himself to us in his son Jesus Christ it is the amazing God who gives us the commandments And his entire word so that our lives, our interactions with him and with one another fill us with them with joy and purpose. Even the angels in heaven are rejoicing and filling heaven with praise and song for the children who are responding to their God and father in a life filled with love. That is the Christian life and that is the taste of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. That brings us to our second point, why God is number one. Now you notice that our Lord's Day also deals with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You might ask, why is is there not a separate Lord's Day for this first commandment? Just like all the other commandments, they all have their own Lord's Day. And there's even a third commandment, which has two. All of this is understand when we ask an even deeper question. Why is the first commandment dealing this point that we are to have no other gods before the Lord our God? Why is it the first? One reason should be very obvious and it goes back to the opening of the Ten Commandments when we see what a great amazing God we have and how he has come to us in saving grace even providing us with guidelines for holy living how can not the first uh, first and foremost commandment be that he and he alone is our god but can't we can't even ha- sorry we can't have any other gods besides him or in front of him that's all very obvious but there is a second thing if it's not clear to us right from the start that god is number 1 in our lives The rest of the Ten Commandments really don't matter. You may as well throw them out the window. If God is not number one in our life, why in the world would I feel inclined to keep the Sabbath day if I don't have this amazing relationship with God? Why would I not take advantage of my neighbor, either stealing from him directly? If money is my God, why shouldn't I overcharge, underpay, Hurt people by not paying a fair wage or making him or her work in unsafe conditions? After all, I'm just looking after my own interests. Never mind him. But you can't think that way. And you can't act that way when you know God. Love him and serve him with all your heart, soul, and mind. When God is number one, the rest of the commandments make beautiful sense and you want to keep them. The Lord's Day tells us a bunch of things that we are not to do when it comes down to whom we worship and who is most important in our lives, but it speaks very positively and emotionally in question and answer 94, and it says there that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, fear and honor him with all my heart." That is talking about our very real emotional relationship with God. We need to get to know him. Maybe we should say, we want to get to know him. That should be easy to do. We have the Bible and the preaching of the word, Bible study, and you know what? You can live to be 100 years old, having heard almost 10,000 sermons read the Bible every day and go to Bible study and you realize that there is so much more to know about God. You can talk to any senior here in this congregation who are 80, 90 years old and they will tell you that I am on a journey, a delightful journey of getting to know God. What happens is that we get to trust him. We know that he loves us, he gave a son to die for us, And make us his eternal children. Do we honestly think. That he will let anything separate us. From the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Even when times get tough. We go through pain. Through health issues. Loss of loved ones. Through hurt. Through loneliness. Struggling to live in a world. That is so humanistic and ungodly. That it is positively sick. But with all humility and patience, we cast our anxieties and burdens on him. And we say, it is well, Lord. It is well with my soul. And we we see that we can trust him so much that we can expect all good from him only. As a family, you might be going through some really hard times. But God is good. You grow in faith. As a couple, you turn more to each other. And you start to focus on the more important things in life. Like your mutual faith. Your raising of children in the fear of the Lord. Most importantly, we all know that our Lord Jesus Christ is preparing a home for us in heaven. So that we can spend eternity with him in the new Jerusalem. Where there will be no more tears. No sin. No pain. No death. No hostility of any kind. God is good. and for that, we love, fear and honor Him with all our heart. As we also read in Matthew 6: "Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and God will take care of you and grant you all the things that you need. The last question and answer in this Lord's day seems, at least at this point, at least, to be stating the obvious that it is the dumbest thing in the world. For having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of, or in addition to, the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. We are all going to sit here and nod in sage agreement. That's especially the case when we see in the previous question and answer the examples of worshipping other gods, idolatry, witchcraft, superstition and prayers to saints or to other creatures. A nice, easy list, easy to wrap your mind around. And You say to yourself, I think I got this covered. I'm not superstitious. I don't pray to saints or to other creatures. I have a full respect for the Heidegger Catechism and totally agree with what it says here. But it's a little stale. And it's easy to agree with without really getting to the heart of the matter. Do you, my brothers and sisters, avoid idols, witchcraft, superstition, and prayers to saints? So is all good? Think of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where he's talking about laying up treasures in heaven, and then not worrying about the stuff in your life. He says in the middle of that, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There the Lord Jesus touches on something that is totally relevant today, the love of money and material things. Now, we do want to be a little careful here. It's not that money and material things are bad in themselves. To a certain extent, the Lord has blessed us with all material things, like a roof over our head, clothes on our backs, foods on our table. To a certain extent, the Lord has blessed us with material things. We need to take care for our families, for the kingdom works such as building Christian schools and maintaining a physical church building and a manse for our pastor. That point is as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not money that is the problem, but it's the love of money. If our hearts are set on material things and we measure our happiness by how much money we have, then that becomes a God to us. A stone-cold, heartless, and in the end, useless God, but a God nevertheless. The Lord Jesus says you can't even have your heart in two places, love God and love money, because the love of money will always dissolve the trust, love, and hope in God. It is extremely important that we think and pray about these things, brothers and sisters. Ask yourself the question, how important has money and stuff become in my life? If I have a setback, does the joy flood from my life? I assure you, brothers and sisters, I am thinking just as much as myself as I am for you all. In our day and age, we are very focused on material things. This is an easy God for us to get deeply enchanted with, but it is no God. I have seen too many people's lives deeply damaged by the love of money. Even in their families, acquiring money was the most important than their relationship with their wife and children. Then you get old, you have more money than you need, your marriage isn't great and your kids don't have a lot of time for you except for a handout or two. Your marriage isn't, or, uh, and when you die, do we honestly think money and material things are going to do any, any good? As, in Job, as Job said in Job 1 verse 21, after he lost his children and material things, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All this talk, brothers and sisters, is not meant to be a discouragement. It is only meant to make us all think about our lives, about our priorities, and realize the number one thing that's important, amazing, and lasting in our lives is the Lord our God, the great I am the almighty eternal God that has become our Father in Christ. How wonderful it is to know him and to be able to give our lives to him by loving him and loving our neighbor. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. Amen.